1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: You can be uh, assured that at some point when Congress gets away from their other financial distractions, they will return once again to the topic of gun control. They did as they did so following the Sandy took events. Joining me now with some insights, we're joined by Bill Frady. Bill is host of the nationally syndicated program called Lock and Load presented by Gun Owners of America. Bill, thanks for taking some time to be with us tonight. Um, I, I guess only the distraction of other things going on in Washington D.C. Um, has temporarily the del- the delayed the parade of uh, once again renewed demands to uh, truncate the Second Amendment rights.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right now they've got bigger fish to fry. Uh, it, it's really you know in the United States uh, since Sandy Hook, uh, there's been five studies and surveys taken. Uh, Two of them, actually three of them are quite notable because one was Harvard, one was the CDC, and one that was the Justice Department. And what the CDC found out is, uh, John Lott's numbers and Gary Kleck's numbers and all of, all the numbers that we hear about two and a half million, three million gun uses per year in defense are true. And that law-abiding gun owners are very good people. They don't break the law. They, they, they don't snap because they're carrying the evil gun. Uh, Police, uh, the, we had the police one survey where they did 15,000 police officers across the country and, uh, the lowest percentage of police that were talking about they preferred having Americans armed with guns was in the 80% pile. Uh, they don't believe more gun control is going to stop crime or do anything. Uh, then of course we had, uh, the Pew Research Center and, uh, I think I've named them all now. Crime is down, 49%. Gun violence, violent crime across the board is down half of what it was 20 years ago. It, it's a non-problem. And But that's not why they're pursuing gun control. So that's why they continue to pursue gun control. It has nothing to do with personal safety or uh, preventing crime because gun control doesn't prevent crime. It, it uh, motivates crime.
0: Well, and, you know, the the absolute irony in almost without failure, every one of these cases from the White House, I'm sorry, from the uh, wire story that I'm reading right here um, that suggests that the uh, potential woman in this uh, event there on Capitol Hill today, 34-year-old Miriam Carey, um, a dental hygienist from Connecticut who, quote, was described by sources as having a history of mental illness, close quote. Certainly in the case of uh, the Naval Shipyard Shooter, a history of mental illness. There seems to be a common thread in almost every one of these cases. As eager as Congress is to try to move in and outlaw guns, how come nobody's attempting to try and outlaw mental illness?
1: Well, that's because they would have to treat it differently. Um, uh, Dr. Keith Abloh is a psychiatrist that writes for Fox News, and he, he was talking about Aaron Alexis, and Aaron Alexis could have been redeemed. Most of these people could be redeemed, but what happens is they go, to a, they go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and they get some over-the-counter, well, over oral medication like Paxil or Ritalin or Zoloft or one of those psychotropic compounds, and that really doesn't address their issue. The ones that are deeply, I mean, Aaron Alexis, he did everything but uh, write out a letter, big block letter, somebody needs to help me. He went to the police, he went to the VA. He had, shoot, he had two shooting incidents prior to uh, getting cleared to work at the naval shipyard. Um, and, and still, nobody did anything.
0: He and and ironically, nobody looking driver. at any of the psychiatrists involved in this and saying, gee, we need to do an investigation into potential malpractice here because of the failure of the mental health professionals to aggressively respond or react to the obvious cry for help.
1: Uh, you know, I don't know if the, these guys fall under the, uh, the heading of medical misadventure, but um, if you want to go after the two biggest killers in the United States, or two. I think the average is 2.5 million people die unnaturally per year, and the biggest killers are alcohol and tobacco and then medical misadventure, which kills about 200,000 people a year. And I don't know if these, these poor people that uh, fall through the cracks of the mental health system could be listed under medical misadventure, but they—they uh, they certainly need to. They need to take a very serious look at, at, at the way they're treating these people.
0: One of the or states that, that, ironically, has um, come across fairly unscathed in terms of this kind of widespread bloodshed in uh, in recent years, and yet has taken some of the hardest line against gun control, is uh, the state of California. Um, yeah. There is now an attempt to try, and, and and I guess at the end of the day you'll have to help us understand this, Bill, uh, it, it seems as if it's now gotten down to an attempt to try and outlaw hunting rifles.
1: Well, what they want to do is they all want to outlaw all semi-automatic rifles that have a detachable box magazine, which abandons all pretense beyond the assault weapon ban Now. You've got to understand, first of all, assault weapon, the term assault weapon is a term that was coined by the uh, Violence Policy Center, which is a rabid anti-gun group. And they termed that back in 1988 as as a way to uh, cause an emotional reaction to the description, assault weapon. Uh, Not a target pistol, not a sporting rifle. Uh, The the same rifles, by the way, are referred to by the Department of Homeland Security as personal defense weapons. But... um, in the hands of a civilian, it becomes a, a, an assault weapon. And uh, now they've abandoned all pretense, and they're going just about everything that launches a bullet.
0: With the Lee, Remington geez. that was used in the naval shipyard shootings, uh, what I understand to be a simple pump-action shotgun, does that suddenly come under the category of an assault weapon?
1: Uh, well, they. <laughs> one state had a buyback Not to, since the D.C. shooting. And uh, one of the buybacks, that somebody bought, uh, uh, turned in a pump shotgun with an extendable stock, and that was the that they uh, claimed they had collected an assault shotgun. Um, one one characteristic that uh, all weapons, and you know, shotguns arguably, uh, are in Aurora. James Holmes killed 12 people. The first weapon he turned on the moviegoers was a Remington 870 shotgun. And, uh, my theory is probably killed eight people with the shotgun before he went to the center fire rifle. Because a shotgun close is devastating. It, it is much more dangerous. Uh, at 50 yards, uh, a shotgun with the right kind of ammo can take out a car. What this is, is, is simply this. With, with uh, the so-called assault weapons, the military look-alikes that have the same uh, semi-automatic capability as a true assault rifle does when it's in semi-automatic. If they ban those, first of all, it's not going to have any impact on crime, because more people get killed with hands and feet every year than they do with any sort of long rifle. They know that, so they ban those, or they they heavily restrict those, and that has no impact on crime, and crime continues on, so then they come back, and I think what you've got in California, is you have this happening now, they come back when that first go-round that first restrictive go round doesn't work, and they come back and say, "Well, we're getting banned enough." And they keep on banning and banning until one day you've got a single shot rifle that uh, you know, and and still, you know, that weapon is lethal. I, they, they, what what Senator Leland Yee and a lot of the politicians in California want is a fairy tale land. It's a land that does not exist. There is no gun free utopia. That genie is out of the bottle. Criminals are not
0: going to pay attention to it. Well, and we know clearly from the battles over these kinds of issues in times past, the last time we had um, California Senator Dianne Feinstein uh, jump on this bandwagon with both feet and insisting that we needed to uh, permanently ban assault weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and how terrible they were and that people should not be carrying guns. And then we find out, oops, she's got a concealed weapons permit. I don't have a problem with her as a senator carrying, but when there is sort of the elitist attitude that certain people get to have guns and others don't, you know, it comes down to one basic thing, that as we see this continued push, it's not addressing the real problem here, number one. And to number two, you're going to wind up with two groups of people having weapons. Uh, the police force, which is heading more toward a maritalistic style um, you know, almost paramilitary troopers, any more than police these days with the way they're being armed, and the criminals. And meanwhile, the law-abiding citizens will simply get caught in the middle, no access to weapons whatsoever, which is kind of seemingly where things are headed if they get their way. Check out LockAndLoadRadio.com. That's LockAndLoadRadio.com, a part of Gun Owners of America. And there is Bill Frady on this edition of Lifeline. <laughs>
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: There is an idyllic formula for life, and I think we all know how generally it goes. You have school-age crushes, you fall in love around the age of 17 or so, then you're off to college by 18, you marry your high school sweetheart by 22, buy a home, raise a family, retire, you die, and someday you're buried by your surviving children. That's the idyllic formula. Of course, we know that Contrary to that, life often hands us something quite different, and when that formula falls out of order, it can create a tremendous amount of pain. It can cause people to be stumbling in their relationships, both spiritual as well as with their relationships on the horizontal plane. How do you go about recovering from Life When It Happens Out of Order. Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. And Pamela, welcome to the program. Thank you, Craig. Your life kind of happened out of order, in a sense. It did. (laughs) Particularly so, and I think that every parent who's heard of these stories immediately gets that sort of quickening in their hearts that, oh, I never want that to happen to me. That sense that we are supposed to be buried by our children. We're not supposed to bury our children. Mm-hmm. And yet that happened to you not once but twice in a relatively short period of time and then compounded with a divorce after many, many years of marriage. How did all that impact you in terms of your viewpoint on life and your relationship to God?
2: Well, Craig, really the reason that I wrote the book is to support people who go through difficult times in their life, and to let them know that there, there really is light at the end of the tunnel. I feel so blessed by God to have a life that is filled with joy, regardless of the fact that I have had suffering. And I wanted to share that with people and give people hope, and also support people who are going through something at the particular moment that they may have read the book or be reading the book.
0: You describe your experience as feeling lonely and isolated. And it's funny because so oftentimes we'll go through the loss of a loved one. There will be a grieving process. There Mm -hmm. will be a funeral. People send cards. They send flowers. They telephone us. They send over the proverbial, the, the casserole for dinner and things of this sort. They try to give us a lot of attention. And yet there's a time when that activity slows down. And then suddenly you're left with that sense of, the why questions, Uh and struggling through that that tremendous sense of loss and that isolation. it's amazing that you can be surrounded by people, and yet, because of that experience, you feel so terribly lonely and isolated.
2: I I think that the the loneliness I felt was more around my my marriage than around the deaths of the children, Mm. oddly enough. Uh, There was a sense of loneliness, even though I was married, because we weren't able to really communicate in the way that I had hoped, or I think even he had hoped. and um, and it was a sense of of really needing to to find a way to either communicate or to separate. And um, I, I think I, I sometimes would say to myself that having to go through a divorce was almost more painful because it was a really a dream that was just completely broken. And I wasn't able to live out what I had hoped. I have always believed that the children are gifts from God. I have five children, two of whom live with God in the spirit world and three of whom I see very often and who have grandchildren. And I feel blessed with the three that I have and I feel blessed with the two that are with God. But they are gods. I've been given them just for a short period of time. We almost have to look
0: at it from a perspective of of the children being on loan from God.
2: Exactly. And that's not to say that I didn't grieve very, very deeply. When each of those children pass to God,
0: you mentioned about that tremendous sense, though, of isolation and loneliness over the marriage, and it's yes. interesting because as much as I point to um, how we will have a grieving process, and, and culture provides for mm-hmm. uh, sympathy cards and acknowledgement yes. of the loss and things of this sort, but that really doesn't happen around a divorce, does no, it? The death it of doesn't. a marriage, you don't no. you don't get people don't send you cards, you don't no. get flowers.
2: I think people who have had to go through divorce. Really understand that no one would do that unless they absolutely had to, that it's a it's a very painful thing to have to do, and um, I often I often think, what if I didn't have to do that? What if, if if the marriage were still there? And yet it it wasn't, and I have to acknowledge that it was just the way it was meant to be.
0: Was it important for you to come to a point in life, Pamela, where you grieved for the loss? Oh, of Oh, I that? grieved
2: deeply. I grieved deeply even before uh, I I separated from my, my husband because I could see it coming. I could feel it coming. And there was some way that, you know, it's like a wave. We couldn't stop it. And I'm going to cry myself to sleep because I knew that's what I was going to have to do.
0: A lot of people go through that experience, be it the loss of a loved one that's very near and dear yes. or a marriage. and. Those past injuries, those old wounds, they they continue as as untreated, gaping wounds that continue to fester and oftentimes hinder our spiritual progress and certainly hamper our relationship with God and with others. Did you find yourself going through that? What what set you on the spiritual journey that you took to sort of get reconnected with God in a deep way and to go looking for, for a lot of the answers that you sought?
2: Well, when Maggie died, she was four months old. I really wasn't involved in spirituality. I went to church every week, and I had a relationship with God that I think was significant. But I didn't have any awareness. I hadn't done a lot of reading or studying. It wasn't until Sean died, and Sean died when he was 16. He took his own life. But at that point, I was studying theology, and I was much more aware. I also had experienced the death of a child, so I knew I wasn't going to die. Uh, with Maggie, I, I didn't know if I could continue living. I, I wasn't suicidal, but it was the pain was so great that how does one live, you know, with that level of pain? And that
0: had been a, a difficult childbirth, as I recall. It was from the a block. very
2: difficult childbirth. Then you yes. went
0: through postpartum depression, which I don't know at that time did we even really understand? Did we have a name for it? At no, that time?
2: I, I I I don't think we did. Uh, I don't know. I think people did understand that there was some some sort of hormonal change that was happening that, that women. Who just gave birth would be sad, but with Maggie, it was the shock of having a, a C-section, and 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 just I just was completely undone at her birth. She almost died at her birth.
0: That must have been a particularly painful because it was a challenging childbirth, yes. and and both of your lives were at risk at one point. Were they, they were not? yes. So to get through all of that and kind of have the we made it through. Right. She survived. I survived. Right. And then four months later, this huge black, dark cloud rolls in on top That's of your right. life with sudden her, infant death. her loss. Yeah. That sets a lot of people into a downward spiral that some folks, unfortunately, never really recover from.
2: That's right. And I do a lot of work with people who have lost children. And I don't know if I could say overcome, but I have regained my strength emotionally and I've spent a lot of time with the pain, feeling the pain with God and asking for healing. Do you think that's important? And I ask
0: that, Pamela, because so often our society is, is created in a fashion or we're encouraged in a fashion to try to avoid pain or anesthetize pain. People go through different things in life, and I can't handle it, so they reach to the pill bottle, they go to the booze, maybe they begin overeating. There's something in there, or become a workaholic. It's something in there that distracts them from going through the pain, and I'm reminded that Christ certainly never promised us that there would be no pain. In That's fact, right. we're reminded in scripture that the rain falls on both the just and the unjust, and so that sense maybe of the importance of learning that we are capable in him and through him to go through the pain as opposed to going around it.
2: That's exactly. And I think being a Christian, I could sit with Jesus and I could he could understand me and I could sit with Mary. I'm raised Catholic, so Mary has been always important to me in my life. She, she knows what it's
0: like to lose a child. She does know
2: she? what it's like to lose a child. And so she became a, a great companion for me as I grieved the death of my children. And w- with Sean particularly, I, I think I had the wisdom to understand that if I didn't feel the pain and allow myself to really experience it, that I would never be to the other side. I, w- mm. I would have done something to anesthetize myself.
0: And it becomes a a major stumbling block, doesn't it? I mean, if you, if you don't go through the grieving process, if you don't, in a sense, legitimize the pain, sometimes we want to hide it because we don't know how to handle it, or society is telling us to buck up, hang in there. Exactly. I bet there were people that said, well, now, Pamela, but you still have three other children. What about them?
2: Yes.
0: Is this somehow you're going to have that, uh, or you know, a slap on the forehead moment and say, oh, of course, what was I thinking? Right. People sometimes just don't really understand, do they? No, they And so when they're in their effort to try and be kind, they're actually heaping more more coals upon our heads unwittingly.
2: Well, you, you said it in the beginning that uh, this losing a child for many people is their worst fear. And so they don't want to see you in pain. So, gosh, it's been a year aren't you okay? And it's uncomfortable for people to be with other people who are grieving, especially if you're not willing to feel your own pain. You don't want to be with people that are in pain. I have a lot of compassion for people who are grieving because I have felt my pain. Not to say that there won't be another moment where, where I'll experience an aspect of my past that I need to spend time with God with. Because we never know when we're finished. We never know when when everything has been healed. Uh, But I, I do have compassion for people because I'm not afraid of pain. Pain has transformed me.
0: If you've just joined us, my guest today is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues.
1: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig
0: Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime. Now, Pamela, you touch on a very valid point that I want to have you sort of underscore, uh, bold and italicize for a moment. And that is that we never quite know when we're done with it all in the sense of that, that healing process and right. that grieving process. We We tend sometimes to be take such a a formula approach to this a very close friend of mine who lost her husband two and a half three years ago commented to me the other day that you know I'm really having a tough time because I'm not over it yet Mm -hmm. and I thought about that statement and I, I finally said to her I said you know is this something you really want to get over you were married for what 45 almost 50 years is that something you want to get over When you say get over it, what what do you mean? You mean forget about your marriage and three-quarters of your life? Are you saying that you want to forget all of the pain? And maybe part of the problem here is that our approach to pain is to avoid it or to be anesthetized from it instead of growing through it. And it seems like what you discovered is walking through Scripture, you realize that this is a process that we don't go around, but we have to go through, and that we can actually grow through that pain and that that process is not necessarily something that's instantaneous like, you know, a cup of cold water in the microwave and 30 seconds later you got boiling water. That It might be a lifetime.
2: Absolutely. I think our life is spent um, growing and maturing in our spirituality and our awareness of who we are and who God is and how we are in relationship. You know, I, I, I really think that to understand that we are God's beloved, we have to walk the path. We can't, we just don't, uh, I don't know, there's some way, and I don't like to use the word we earn, the awareness of we are God's beloved, but we certainly have to reach deep into our souls to experience that's who we are, and if we have blocks there because we haven't felt the pain or the anger or the fear, then we aren't going to get to that place of joy and wonder and acceptance of God's love.
0: Pamela Prime is with us today. The book, When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. Part of this challenge of managing pain and grief and loss tends to have a bit of family legacy or history to it, doesn't it? At one point in the book, you talk about um, sort of that history of having grown up and then later on in life carrying on that sense of that, you know, we don't trust, we don't feel, we don't tell. There are a lot of families that are like that. Yes, uh, Things that go on inside the family that might be a family secret. Uh, it can be something severe on that end, or just simply a pattern in which we shut off feelings and emotions as a way of dealing with them. And, of course, we know that that ends up warping our relationships and, and certainly our relationship with God. What was the turning point for you to begin to say that, you know, that that, that legacy, so to speak, that you had been raised with and it continued on in your life of that Don't trust, don't feel, don't tell. At what point did you say,
2: we need to short-circuit this? I think the beginning was the death of Maggie because I had to feel those feelings. There was no way I could get out from underneath them. But I had another experience of being in the kitchen with my papers, getting ready to teach uh, CCD, a class on Christian education, Mm -hmm. to the sixth graders. And the topic was God's love. And, and I sat there looking out the window, and I thought, how am I going to teach these children about God's love? And I, and I was looking at the flowers. It was spring, and the flowers were beautiful. And I was thinking, well, one way I could teach them was would just take them out into the, the fields and the gardens and talk about the beauty of nature and how God has given this all to us. And suddenly, I had this awareness of God's love that was so overwhelming that I felt it in every cell of my body. Hmm. And I went running to the Bible. At that point in my life, I don't think, I didn't even have a Bible. Um, I, I had one family Bible in the house, but I didn't have one that I read every day. And I grabbed this family Bible and I started pouring through it because I wanted to know who this God was that was loving me beyond anything I could possibly ever imagine. And I knew at that point that it wasn't just me, that it was everyone and everything in creation that this love was just beyond anything that I possibly had ever experienced Our before. Our eyes
0: sometimes get blinded to that, like the proverbial horse with the blinders on. We and, see just down that narrow yeah. tunnel of the road ahead of us. and. You you would think of the example that you'd say, how do we demonstrate God's love when there's so much pain in the earth and there's so much suffering? Exactly. To try to explain to a young child who could, as you're talking about God is love and what we see demonstrated of God's love through the sacrifice of his son in Scripture, who couldn't readily raise a hand and say, but wait a minute. How yeah. do you explain away the fact that my daddy was killed in the war mm-hmm. or mommy and daddy are no longer married or, you know, whatever a child might bring up is the pain that they're they're dealing with. And to to be able to see that God's love transcends all of that. Yes. And that he loves us through those painful experiences. Walks
2: with us, carries us. I mean, tears with us. And uh, I I think sometimes we focus so much on what's wrong that we forget about focusing on what's exquisite and on on God.
0: Do we have to work hard? That passage in Scripture comes to mind, labor to enter into his rest. Do we have to work hard to labor into experiencing his joy? And I ask that question because some people may just want to plop themselves down in a room and say, Okay, God, make it all happen. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> this is a journey, isn't it?
2: It definitely is a journey. You I mean, talk that... in
0: the book about praying and fasting mm-hmm. and reading, and you even went back to school. You were studying uh, theology with the Jesuits. Yes. There's some effort at this, isn't there?
2: Well, there is an effort, but there's also, uh, there's also the experience of God causing that effort. Do you know there's some way in which I was called into prayer and called to study and called to search and called because the longing that I had in me that I was feeling was really God longing for me. Mm. And it was my response. And
0: the deeper you go in, the deeper he draws you in.
2: Well, yes, because you're, because then you're available mm. to God for those calls. So it's, it's a really it's a love relationship, really. And um, I think that lover wants all of us.
0: <laughs> he does indeed, doesn't <laughs> yes. he? Yes. On this edition of Lifeline, Pamela Prime is with us today. We're gonna to take a brief timeout, have her share some closing thoughts as this edition of Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. So Pamela, as we were talking just before the break, there is a longing of God's creation for Him. And really, there's also God who longs for us. And of course, the deeper we go in that longing, the deeper He draws us in. Um, Yes. There's so much we see in Scripture about... Surrendering. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, Christ ultimately modeled that, my goodness, the, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes. And knowing the pain that he knew he would be facing, and yet to be able to have the stamina to say, But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Yes. And even in that moment. Yes. Christ demonstrated to us what it means to fully surrender to God and then watch as we see that story unfold from Gethsemane to then Golgotha, and eventually on that hill, hung on the tree, and then, of course, the good news of the resurrection on the third day. We see how God was there through all of that, even at the moment when he utters, God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. We we fully understand that, in fact, God had not forsaken him at any point, and maybe that's the big important message that, that readers can extrapolate from your book. That even though we go through these experiences, as you recount the story of losing Maggie, Sean to suicide at the age of 16, your marriage after 23 years, that God is still with us, even though sometimes it doesn't always feel like that. Yes. He hasn't forsaken us. And if we will reach out to him, he will reach back to us, won't he?
2: Well... I think God is reaching out to us before we reach out to God. You know, I think we're already (laughs) in God's lap. is very true, isn't it? (laughs) And uh, God is waiting for us. God was never lost. (laughs) No, God was never lost. I, I remember just getting so so upset and so sad one day because we had moved and I was in a place that I had never lived before and and a neighborhood that was very foreign to me. We moved from the from the East Coast. Was this the Tennessee experience? Yeah, to Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And that's where I really was lonely and isolated and and really depressed. Uh, From the East
0: Coast or or Walnut Creek on the other end and then Tennessee. That's a culture shock, isn't it?
2: Yeah. And so I I was like a fish out of water, really. And I remember just plunking myself down in this chair and and just raising my eyes and, and my hands and saying, God, where are you? And I heard back. I thought you'd never ask.
0: <laughs> you know, I was there so, all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: exactly. And that was—I that was another turning point. It was, you know, these these moments where I realized I would realize that I had this magnificent relationship, this magnificent love relationship, and uh, you know, God was always poking at me and, and trying to wake me up to that.
0: Those peaks on the uh, the Richter scale, like exactly. an earthquake. You know, they don't happen all the time. Right. But those earthquakes that sometimes can jostle us, yes, they can be upsetting, like some of the events in life can be upsetting. Yeah. And yet they can also be those, those shocking moments that will awaken a sense of the spiritual in us. That's right. Drive us back towards Scripture, back toward the foot of the cross, Mm -hmm. because let's face it, when life is going well, what do you need God for? But it's in those moments when life is shaking us like an earthquake that we suddenly now can open our eyes and, and realize that it's more about than just the pain and the loss and the grieving and the trying to figure it out. It's about allowing God to love us in and through those negative experiences, the terrible things that most of the world works very hard to try to avoid or anesthetize the pain of. And experience God in the pain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Paul talked about knowing Christ in the power of the resurrection. And people like to put the period right there. Boom. I like that. Boy, the resurrection. Look at that. Raised from the dead. Can't beat that. Right. But he doesn't end there. He goes on to say, and in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we, we like that power of the resurrection part, but getting to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings and realizing, as you mentioned earlier, that. He knows. He can relate. He knows mm-hmm. what we're going through. Exactly. And in and through that, then we can find that sense of, of peace and comfort that surpasses all understanding.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: And that certainly has been your experience, hasn't it?
2: It really has been my experience, and that's really why I wrote the book, because I feel very blessed. I I find now, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but majority of my prayer is a prayer of gratitude mm-hmm. because of my life. I just feel deeply blessed. I have a beautiful marriage, and live in a beautiful part of the world, and I don't know. God is just blessing me.
0: (laughs) Let's talk about briefly the beautiful part of the world that you live in, down (laughs) in in Twainheart. You and your husband um, operate just a, a wonderful location there. You've had a retreat center for many, many years that I understand is now available. And boy, a family looking for a great place to get away to or maybe um, even a religious organization that says, hey, we'd like to just get a, a, a small, neat little retreat center in the middle of the spectacular uh, California Redwoods. You're about an hour north of Yosemite, so listeners that know the Twain Heart area immediately know we're talking about a little slice of heaven here on this side. Um, you've got a beautiful piece of property there. Tell us a bit about it.
2: Well, it's uh, it's five acres, and um, when Dave and I moved there, we... Started to recreate it. It had fallen into great disrepair. So we rebuilt the house uh, completely, really. I think there was one stick left by the time (laughs) the contractor got in and started ripping things out. Uh, And so we built a beautiful home. But then we built a tree house that's 35 feet above the ground. And uh, that was all architecturally designed and built by by a man from Maine who we brought to help us build this. And the community built it on the ground, and we lifted it up with a crane. Uh, We've had a lot of fun on the property. The property has a lake that's all spring-fed, and it has a stream that goes through it. And then we have another guest house that's on the lake, that it floats on the lake. It has a float, and uh, these buildings are yurts. We have a writer's studio, and we also have another yurt that was really our chapel, and... um, we did healing circles every month. And
0: you've done a lot of writing there on the property, too, I have you? I have.
2: I moved there to write,
0: and so that's where I wrote the book. So really is is the kind of environment that can allow you to get away from the madness of uh, of all the, the busyness of the big city, so yes. to speak. And, and, you know, what better place if you're looking to reconnect with God or go deeper with God than yes. to get out there in his creation— Right. where you suddenly realize that sparrows cast shadows when the sun is in the right direction um, and that there's other noise than the sound of passing fire engines and helicopters in the airport nearby mm-hmm. and really be able to kind of just yeah. bask in the glory of that creation.
2: Yes, it's beautiful. It's very peaceful. People say when they come on retreat, uh, we have three guest houses for retreats. They say, uh, this place is magical. Or they say it's so peaceful. And we've had, I think that the place has just grown in terms of its sense. You know, when you go in a church, you feel really a beautiful energy. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's because people pray there. And many, many people have come to the property and, and prayed and meditated and done retreats. So you feel that energy on the property, aside from the fact that the trees and the water are exquisite energetically, and the birds and all the little animals that live there.
0: And as beautiful as a, a chapel can be, it's still made by the hands of man, and yet you're you're in a chapel there that is literally created by the very hand of God himself.
2: Exactly. You can't
0: really compete with that,
2: can no, you? No, you can't.
0: Folks want to get more information, um, I'll send you to the website, twobearsdancing.org. That's twobearsdancing.org. And I want to thank Pamela Prime for dropping by and sharing today. It's been great to visit with you. Thank you, Craig. More information again on the web, twobearsdancing.org.